number of years ago, there was a season in my life where um, five very close friends died. I think it was about a six-month process. One I worked with, four that attended our church. Um, they were men I leaned on. They were men I went to. They were men who, who def- they had my back. They defended me. And in that season, I remember when they all died, I, um, I would have what you would call maybe a low-grade depression fever. I didn't look forward to much to life. It wasn't like I denied Christ. I showed up to work. I preached. But I can remember as I looked back on that season, um, it, was, it was discouraging, downcast. I, I had moments, I think, that I could even say I, I felt scared. It's like, you know, God, how do, I, how do I go on without these kinds of people in my life? One was right next door to me, and I would process countless questions and issues that we would face together. One was the chair of the team that brought me here 15 years ago. And some of the conversations that we had, some on the phone, some face-to-face, they were, they were the most stabilizing things in the world. I'm not saying for a moment that I tried to replace God with them. I'm just saying that periodically in the Christian life, you have things that can happen to you. And it's not because you're a weak Christian. At least that's my defense. It's not because you're, you know, um, in sin. It's because sometimes life brings things that just cause you to kind of have a doubt or a discouraged heart. That's where these writers are. Things aren't turning out the way they want. God's not answering prayers the way they had hoped. And what they become aware of in these two Psalms, and we're going to look a little bit at 42 and 43, is they become aware that they're they're discouraged. And so they ask themselves this question. It's almost kind of like this out-of-body experience they have with themselves. Uh, Why, soul, are you downcast? Do they really not know? Well, they've rehearsed a lot of it. I think it's their way to say, God, my heart is really heavy today. And and some Christians don't have permission to go there. I feel sad for them. There are Christians that just, yep, they can never tell you, nope, top of the world, the day is great, the joy of the Lord. And it's like, you know, sometimes you want to tell them, would you inform your face of what you're telling me? Because your face is telling me a different story. Your eyes are telling me a different story. And it's okay. I'm not asking you to always be on top of the world. Because sometimes in the Christian life, we actually experience dry seasons. That's what these guys are. And we're talking about discovering hope. But sometimes we have to acknowledge, God, I don't feel very hopeful. I don't feel very excited. I'm not excited about where things are at in life. I'm frankly just discouraged. And what these rocks do for us today is not only give us permission to go there, but more importantly, a pathway to walk out of this. Because I think in the Christian life, you're going to experience dry seasons. You're going to have those moments where you're, you're down, you're downcast. You just want to sit at home and eat a bowl of ice cream or maybe the whole court. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and you chase the ice cream with a, mounding 
glorious mountain of, you know, nachos. And you say, you can really do that? Well, it depends on how discouraged I am. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's nothing. You got to see me when I'm depressed. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we get there. And what the writers take us to is not only the willingness and honesty and helpfulness of acknowledging that and some reasons why we might go there, but maybe more importantly is, God, how do I get out of this? Will I get out of this? What are some of the contributing factors? Well, there's at least three in this text. They're not the only ones. I listed one that doesn't show up in the text. But let's identify the three that come here. Number one is what I would call a neglected soul. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Let me ask you a basic question. We all know it. Why does a deer drink? Because it's... And why does it get thirsty? Because it hasn't had anything to... Done. Sermon's over. What's his metaphor? What's he telling us? He's saying, my friends, your soul is thirsty. The reason why you're discouraged, the reason why you have this downcast soul is because your soul is thirsty. It's not an abstract weird thing. It should not count you or catch you off guard. Why, Why might it? Well, he tells us. When can I go and meet with God? Ah. Haven't been to church? Haven't been cracking the word? Haven't been spending time with the Father. So you don't have to go to the temple. I believe in going to church, absolutely. But the reality is, I don't think that's what he's talking about. He says something, something's happened in their life. What, what is it? It's busyness. Maybe they get up in the morning and their, their business is going downhill a little bit. And they're like, man, I got to turn this thing around. And so you wake up in the morning and you really want to spend some time with the Lord. But you just kind of whisper this quick prayer as you jump into the automobile and you're heading off to work. God, man, you got to give me wisdom because I don't know how to turn this business around. It's going down. Or maybe you have have a marriage that's just struggling and you're just like you get up in the morning and the reality is you don't want to hang out at the house you don't want to go out to the sunroom you want to get to the office because the office is a safe place for you and the next thing you know you go this period of time who knows how long is it weeks is it months it can be longer and because you don't have anything on your body that registers your soul is thirsty like your gas tank and to be quite honest with you, you're, you're not quite like a deer because a deer, when it gets thirsty, it gets to water. But sometimes you don't get your soul to God. Like a deer that hasn't had any drink in a long time, it's thirsty. And a neglected soul can lead to a discouraged heart as quickly as anything It can simply be because you're slammed, your schedule, your kids, they're in the middle of going to every activity in the world. 
And you get home at night and you think, man, I'm going to read the Bible when I get home. I'm going to connect with God. I'm going to go on a walk. But then to be quite honest with you, nine o'clock hits and you think, I am so tired. All I want to do is kiss my pillow. Sometimes that neglected soul can find itself in the midst of chaos. And it's easy to forget God's promises. My tears, he says, have been my food day and night. Now, I don't know about what's going on in that person's life, but think about it. If you went to sleep crying and you woke up crying, something's wrong. If that's normal for you, let's talk afterwards. That, that's not normal. It should not be normal that you go to bed every night weeping and wake up every morning weeping. That's the chaos that he's into. That's the chaos that's going on. What can cause that? All kinds of things can cause that. An unwanted pregnancy, a child that recidivizes back into addiction, a marriage that is not sustainably good. In fact, it's killing you. All kinds of things. And in the midst of this chaos, what happens? The same thing that happens in a person's life when you're on a rafting trip. When you're out there on the peaceful waters and it's a one, two, or three, you're kind of like, wow, this is really fun. But let me tell you what, when you get into level five and you're flying down that river, you're not thinking, I wonder what I want to eat for dinner tonight. It's the same thing when you smash your hammer or smash your thumb with a hammer. You you smash it and, and you're not sitting there, you know, I think I need to have my nails done. Nobody thinks that way because when chaos hits you, it absorbs you. It just absolutely arrests your attention. And that's what's going on to this individual. God, when I wake up in the morning, my tears, they've been my food. God, when I go to bed at night, I cry myself to sleep every night. And what that person is not thinking about, you can tell it. I've got a Psalm 42 and 43 that have 52 pronouns. 14 of them are I. I've got questions, 13 questions in these two Psalms. They're all about the person. They're all about focused on him. Why? Because in the midst of chaos, we tend to get really myopic. We get really self-centered and we're thinking about us, us, us. And there's a voice we hear, but it's not a good voice because the wrong people seem to have the loudest voices. What are they saying? While men say to me all day long, hey, where's this big God of yours? I was talking with some friends this morning and we were talking about a couple of documentaries that are kind of sweeping through. Uh, one is on the secrets of Hillsong and it's just, it's really sad. It's tragic actually. And, and they were telling me about another one, uh, one on uh, the founder of basic youth conflicts and uh, Gothard and, and uh, some other folks, Dugers. And they, they, they were just reflecting, realizing that we're not sure who did these documentaries, but there's quite a few, you know, first person interviews 
And you can almost imagine Satan sitting there as these things are getting aired and getting broadcast and thousands upon thousands, probably millions of people watching them. You can just hear Satan going, yep, that's the church. That's what it looks like to follow Christ. That's what it looks like to believe in the Bible. And it feels like everywhere Christians at a national level are just really not doing all that well. And that may be what's discouraging you is when you turn on the TV, it's like Christians are just getting hammered. And it seems like we're shooting ourselves in the foot and we can't get out of the way with bringing on all of this ridicule and the mockery of it. And that's what's happening. While men say to me all day long, hey, where's your God? How come he's not rescuing you? How come your ministry is not doing better? When we get into that place, the wrong people seem to have the loudest voices. And it seems like sometimes what you've chosen to do, and, and sometimes you have to take ownership of that, is you wake up and you realize what you've put around you are not people who love Christ, not people who cherish marriage, not people who honor the word of God. You've put around you your closest voices are people who quietly may even mock God. Oh, they'll put up with your faith and religion because you're a pretty good friend and you have a good golf game. But deep down, sometimes the reason why we get discouraged is because the people we're listening to and the people that have access to my ear are not people of loyalty and integrity and commitment. They're people of expediency. They're people who waffle in their character. Every Christian can experience a dry season and the wise ones periodically say to themselves, soul, why are you discouraged today? And what he wants to do in this next movement is to help you walk yourself out of that. Very simply, what does he tell you to do? Change the focus of your life. What is true of virtually every person that is caving in on themselves, deep discouragement, increasing depression to the point of medicinally, uh, literally almost keeping you from exiting the house is a person almost always, myself included, that begins to get self-absorbed. I think I've shared it before. Uh, Dr. Minerth of Minerth Meyer was asked one time, if you had one person, one thing you could tell a person that was battling depression, one thing, what would you tell him? He says, I would tell him to walk out of your house, go to the other side of the tracks, meaning to the poor side of the city, find somebody worse than you and serve them. Because one of the things that can happen in any of us is this obsession that happens in these writers 13 times this question about their life, 52 pronouns, 14 of them I. Where, where's their focus? It's themselves. And in this text, what God tells us to do is number one is, is I want you to focus on the character of God. You got to get your eyes off of yourself. And in particular, number one, I want you to see his strength. Oh, dear soul, put your hope in God. 
Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. What about it? What about God is, is that which captures him? Well, I think the first thing is, is it's his strength. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. What they did, and you do the same thing. Sometimes you're driving along and you see something and it captures your attention. The same thing for them. They're driving along and they see the Jordan. And what they're going to see when they see the Jordan is the beauty and the lush grass and the fruit and the vegetation that comes from water. There's 27 of us that just got back from Israel and it's true everywhere, but it's really true there. When you drive around Israel, you realize with water, you got life. Without water, it's death. And that's true here. If you have water, man, I tell you what, your property is valuable. If you don't have water, it's dust in the wind. And over there, what, what, what the writer is seeing is he comes back and he, and he says, he says, therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan. See, I remember that place where God produced. I remember that place where God brought life. But it's not just there. He says he captures the mountains. And for a Jew, when they look at the mountains, they don't just see, and they're not huge. It's not, we're not talking Mount Everest. But they look up at the mountains and it, and it stirs something in them. If you want to see this, Psalm 121 is a perfect example. They're, they're making their way into Jerusalem. He says, I look to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven and earth. They don't just look at the mountains. They see God. And what he's telling us is you got to get your eyes off of this obsessive look at yourself. And you got to let the world and all that you see in it stir up a remembrance of what? The strength and the power of God. God, you do produce. You do deliver. You are strong. For me, one of my favorite places, probably two places that I love to do this is the ocean. And go out at night when it's dark. You just do this tonight. When it's really dark. I know it's a little harder to do right now. You got to stay up till 11. But if you're a night bird, go out. Turn off as many lights as you can and just look up at the stars. And just start counting them. And realize that the God who created you created every one of those. And it wasn't enough for him to create the stars. I don't know what motivated him. Maybe he has a personal love of stars, but he named every one of them. That's a lot of names. And I'm convinced that God at times sits in heaven and and we think up or we dream up and we invent a Hubble telescope. And those are amazing. They are. And we discover a new galaxy. And I can almost hear the father in heaven go, you guys haven't even started with what I've created. Wait till you see the world from my perspective. And it blows my mind that God not just created them, but named every one of them and ordered them and placed them there and can look at every star and say, that's, and he has a name. 
See, when I wallow sometimes in my discouragement, when I'm afraid because five good friends died, what I'm wondering is, God, am I going to be sufficient? Am I going to be safe? And the writer has to tell me, Mark, get your eyes off of yourself. He's not asking me not to grieve. He's just simply not allowing me to remain in this place of fear and doubt and discouragement. Lift up your eyes. On the way home today, let something stir your heart. Let something that you see get in the habit of seeing not just the mountain, but God. Not just a river, but the provision of God. Not just a flower, but the glorious beauty of God. Because it begins to stir your heart away from the crushing difficulty that we face. Not only his strength, but he also, in this text, talks about his presence Deep calls to deep, he says in verse 7. And in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. I want you to have a little experiment. Be careful. Go out into the ocean to the point where the waves break over you. And ask yourself the question, are you wet? Do you feel the water? Is it around you? Do you feel the effect of it? Can anyone go out there and have the waves break over me and say, you're not present, water. I don't feel you. And then open your mouth really, really wide. And when the waves break over you, suck in really hard. And try to tell me, it's not salty, don't feel it. See, that's what he's saying. He says, I've felt the presence. There's nowhere I can go that you aren't there with me. I feel you. I see you. You're present. All the waves, they're breaking over me. They've swept over me. And there's nowhere I can go in this world that you aren't going with me. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Yours might be different than mine. I know where mine comes from. When you have a dad that ditches you at the age of two and you have virtually every male figure in your life fail you significantly and at times abuse you, when five trusted men die, I wonder, God, am I ever going to have protection again? And I need to get my eyes off of me. And you might need to get your eyes off of you. And you might need to ask God, let me feel the presence of your strength. And let me hear when you speak. When I focus on the character of God, I see his strength. I feel his presence. But also he speaks in this psalm. It's twice. He says, by day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. Later in verse, uh, chapter 43, where he's again looking at the same kind of concept, he says it even more specifically. He says, God, send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them 
be to me this holy mountain. When a person gets into the midst of deep discouragement, depression, one of the things they lose capacity or they lose the ability to do is to make decisions. Things can pile up in front of them. And they go to the office all day and they, and, and I can feel this at times where I go to the office and, and I'm just not, I'm not thinking linearly. I'm just kind of like bouncing all over the place. And, and, and sometimes that's actually a, a good indicator that you need to listen to your soul. You go through the day and it's like, what did I do? I can't remember a thing. I didn't accomplish a thing. And that's one thing to have that happen one day. It's another thing to happen five days in a row. And what the writer is telling God, God, I I need your infusion. I I need you. I need to look up to you, but I need something from you. I'm struggling with making decisions. I'm struggling with energy. I'm struggling with direction. And so God, would you do this for me? Would you send forth your light? My path does not seem very clear right now. And I need you to step in. I need you to be God. And I need to hear your truth and I need to be guided. I have some big decisions to make. And the last thing I want to do, God, is to make a decision in my own flesh, in my own mind, with my own limitations. And I need you to guide me. And I know that you've promised. You said your word is going to be a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. I need that, Lord. When we change the focus of our life, we begin to see his strength, we feel his presence, and we begin to expect and receive the fact that God is always longing to communicate to you. The second thing this writer tells us to do is to orient your attention to future grace. One of the things of discouragement and the depressed heart is it gets very myopic and very centered we weren't discouraged, but I remember when we went through COVID together as a church and as staff, we, we had no window. We weren't looking three weeks down the road. We weren't looking three months down the road. The idea of vision was what do we do tomorrow? And sometimes when the discouraged heart kind of gets over, it's called COVID view. And all we can see is today and maybe the next hour and the idea of dreaming down the road. But ah, something happens. Look with me, he says, oh, then chapter 43, he says, then I'm going to go to the altar of God, to the God, my joy and my delight. And I will praise you with the harp. Oh God, my God. One of the things that can happen, and, and it's true, I've experienced it. I bet you have. When you get discouraged, worship becomes really hard. When you're facing deep challenges, worship is one of those things. It's like, yeah, I'm singing the songs, but I guarantee you they're not, they're not moving past my mind. But here he says, I'm looking forward to something. It's future grace. I'm gliding in the time. Send forth your light to the place where you dwell. And then God, by faith, I believe I'm going to worship again. I'm going to make it. You're going to see me through. Passages like Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ's return. 
God, I'm going to make it. And I'm going to worship you again. And I'm going to orient myself to the future. And last, I'm going to change the questions I'm asking. There are 13 questions that are asked in these two Psalms. 10 of them are why. Why are you allowing this to happen, God? Why have you not answered me? Why do I feel like an orphan? Why haven't you solved my problems? I don't know if you've discovered this, but a good friend in our church, we just had her funeral yesterday. Lynn in 2019, Lynn Barrett, she was diagnosed with cancer. And over that period of time, she struggled sometimes in her faith and she was honest about sometimes her anger with God. And she began to email and I would meet with her and Tony and and we spent quite a little time together. But one of the things that Lynn did was to process her journey through email to me, probably to others. I didn't have any clue how many emails. And so I sat down over the weekend prior to the service yesterday and just kind of looked at how many emails and it was well over 200 emails. I was going through some of them and I remembered one that kind of captured my attention. It was kind of funny, but it was true. She said, basically, hi, this is Lynn. I've been asking God why a lot. And he doesn't seem very obligated to answer. Who are you, the clay, to tell the potter why? You owe me an explanation, God. You owe me an explanation as to why you allowed this to happen. You owe me an explanation, God, as to why you're not resolving this problem. You owe me an explanation as to why I have to take this path. And my friend, your friend Lynn is right. I've been asking God why a lot, but he doesn't seem very obligated to answer. And and if you haven't discovered this one, I will tell you, he doesn't. He feels no burden to answer why. Because he wants you to ask a different question. Because why is explain to me, justify to me, rationalize, own up, God, I deserve an answer. And God would say to us as lovingly as possible, no, you don't. And the questions as they move through this process and any person that's ever discovered or kind of wrestled with this discouragement, this downcast soul comes to the place where their questions begin to change. And they're not, why have you allowed this? Why are you allowing the voices of of despicable debauchery have a play in my life? Why? Why? And God begins to change. And we start asking different questions like, God, you've brought me into this place. I'm here in this job that I hate. Who is it that you want me to love here? I don't think you brought me here for a mistake. 
And I've asked you why you did this to me and why this job seemed so good and it's turning out to be so bad. But rather than demanding that kind of response that God doesn't seem very obligated to answer, might you change your question? God, how can I experience peace in the midst of this situation? I know you want to give it to me. It's what Christ promised. Jesus is the one who said, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave to you. Not like the peace of this world that is ebbed and flowed with the day and the circumstances that you find yourself in. But God, how is it that I can have a peace that surpasses all understanding? Would you teach me how to do that? God, I'm in the midst of a difficult season right now. I've lost good friends or I'm, I'm in a new place. I'm, I don't have the strength of my friends around me. And I realize that I'm kind of a sitting target for the enemy. I'm exposed. I'm vulnerable. I might even be a little afraid. God, what temptations is the enemy going to bring me that I need to be aware of? How can I spot them? God, how are you going to strengthen me because I don't want to cave? You see, when you change the questions from God, I demand an answer from you. Rather, it's God, I trust you. I've seen your strength. I've heard you speak. I know what it means to trust you. I've felt your presence. You're not here leading me to this place because you hate me. You have a purpose for me. Change the focus. Because when you change the focus in your present, you will find hope for your future. You will. When you change and you begin to look to God, those things that feel like they're crushing you, those things that feel like they are stealing your joy, those things you feel like, I'm never going to get over this, lose their power. How do I know this? Just go back and look at your own life. Were there not days in your life? Go back to, I can remember 1993. That was a bad year in our family. It just wasn't fun. In 1994, when Annie was born, and man, that was a, that was a rough ride. And, in, and if you were a pastor in the year 2000, when we went through Y2K, that was nutsville. Christians acted like crazy idiots. They bought enough rice for 10,000 years. They're still eating it. One person went into the generator business. He's still trying to sell them. And then we went in and it was a dark season in, in, in when... 9-11 occurred and, and the church wondered, it's like, is, is this the launch of the tribulation? And fear was ripping through. Oh yes, patriotism was on the rise, but so was fear. We made it through, we had a few good years, got out of 2008 and the economy went up and then we decided to unleash a virus on the entire world and have a heyday. It was crazy. People started mistrusting. 25-year relationships were blown up over a stupid mask. And you know what I've discovered? None of those are still here. They're not. 
I'd have to give you a history lesson to take you down Y2K. What happens is that God gets you through. And the things that feel crushing today, one day will simply be a distant memory. The issue is what do you do today? If you change your focus in the present, you can actually wake up tomorrow with hope. You can have energy. You can have delight. You can look forward. You don't have to anesthetize yourself. You don't have to eat a ton of ice cream. You don't have to smoke weed. You don't have to get drunk. You don't have to sleep with somebody that's not your spouse. You don't have to medicate yourself. Because if I change my focus from the voices of destruction to the one who from the waters of the Jordan bring life, from the mountains of Hermon bring strength, then anything that I face today, God is going to say, I have you. And if I can number the stars, then I have the capacity to take care of your life now. But my dear friend, you have to change your focus. Because if you walk out of here obsessing over that which hurts your heart, you'll again on Monday ask, soul, why are you so discouraged? And God will whisper to you, change your focus.